Good morning, brothers and sisters, both here and online. Glad that you guys are here as we continue our series on the Gospel of John. Um, I'd like to say that my brother Eric is my stunt double, but he's way too cool and good looking for that. It probably would be the other way around. So I'm glad um, that you're here and thanks for laughing with us a little bit this morning. Um, If you were here last week, or if you've been kind of tuning in as we have walked through the Gospel of John, you are probably aware that last week, Pastor Marvin walked us through the Garden of Gethsemane and Peter's failures. And and if you're like me, man, it's like, I totally get Peter. In my enthusiasm, in my excitement, I mean, like, I make all kinds of commitments, and then I look back and I'm like, oh, man. And yet God is there to restore and heal. and He's amazing. And we're going to continue that forward into what most of us recognize, if you, are, if you are a follower of Jesus, that this puts us squarely in the middle of the events of Jesus' trial, condemnation, crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection. And here's the thing, friends. I think in our culture, we have this tendency to sort of fast forward through these events to get to the really like good part of like the sacrifice, death, and burial, and resurrection. But what I'm going to tell you today is, is I think we do that to our peril because I and a lot of theologians would say that what we're going to talk about today is actually the heart of the matter and establishes the foundation upon which all of those events rest. So we're going to spend some time talking about the central issue, the central theme, the central question, and it is essentially the idea of kingship. Hmm. Now we're starters. I would just say that I totally get that in our culture, we don't have a king. We don't like kings. Our country was founded on rebellion against kings, against monarchies, against dictators. We have done everything that we can to escape the idea of monarchy. Thank you very much. So in our minds, we'd like it better if maybe we said that Jesus was our president, right? And you can certainly find bumper stickers in books that actually would talk about that. And when we talk about Jesus is king, it elicits these sort of old world images of thrones and dictators, people who wielded honestly way too much power for one person to wield. And at best in our culture, when we think of kings, we think of something that is probably just kind of passe, you know? I mean, it's just sort of like, oh, that was quaint, culturally obsolete, doesn't really have um, any impact for us today. It's kind of irrelevant. But at worst, we think of modern day examples or even examples in scripture of dictators in our world who are still vying for kingship, where their rule is absolute, and where resistance to their rule is usually met with death. Even in our own country, friends, can you imagine, don't you shudder to think about what would happen if we had a king? Can you imagine if just the last four presidents were kings instead, regardless of whether you felt like they were good leaders or bad? Can you imagine if Biden, Trump, Obama, or Bush had unilateral authority to simply decree and deliver their policies without checks or balances, without a Supreme Court or Congress? Can you imagine 
what that would look like. Yikes. But that's the thing, guys. The simple fact of the matter is, is that Scripture never promises that God will run for office. It just says that he's going to be king, that he will reign forever, and that volunteered or forced, one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We learned that in Philippians 2, 10, and 11. Scripture says that he will, in fact, judge in righteousness and justice. We learn that in Psalm 9, 7, and 8. And he will not only bring about, but will enforce his kingdom. And if you are like me, or theologians like me, you don't just believe that that will happen someday far off when he returns, but you believe that if you call yourself by his name here and now, you are an agent of that kingdom, and you believe that the things that you do right here, right now, to demonstrate, to proclaim, and to incarnate that reality, no matter what it looks like, matters. You believe that our job is to walk alongside, to believe, to pray, to behave, to obey, and to act in such a way that his kingdom comes to earth and his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So whether we like it or not, if we call Jesus our Savior, we are also calling him our Lord and our King. And there are very specific things we need to know and understand about what that means, both in the context that we'll explore in Scripture today, but also for us today. And that does bring us to John 18, 28 through 19, 16, which is, if you are familiar with the text, about Jesus' trial before the Roman governor Pontius Pilate and the Jewish leaders and authorities demanding his crucifixion and death. And you will see that in the midst of all of it, there is this central question that keeps bubbling to the surface, and it is a significant one because it is simply this, who is king? Who is king? And then beyond that, what does that even mean? What kind of kingdom are they representing? What are they selling or demonstrating, so to speak? For us today, it is honestly the same thing, same question. Who is king? Who is your king? Are you king? Is it about your wants, your needs, your dreams, your money, your ambitions, your choices, your comfort? Is your spouse king? Is your boss king? Is your dream king? Is your president king? Is your addiction king? And whatever or whoever it is, what does that even mean? What kind of power, authority, control, and ability to enforce their will as they see fit do they have over you? So we're going to take a look at how that question plays out in this text. And before we do that, let me set just a little bit of context that I think will help us. By the way, we're going to be reading, if you're using the Bible here in the pew in front of you, it's on page 904. Um, So you're going to want to be able to flip to that. But for starters, we need to understand as we dive into the text here that the point of this action is not fundamentally theological at first. See, the Jewish leaders and the Roman officials, 
They weren't trying to figure out if Jesus really could take on the sin of all mankind as an acceptable sacrifice before God. They weren't really trying to see if he could demonstrate a way of life that ushered in the kingdom of God to exhibit for us the reign and rule of a king that comes from heaven to earth. They weren't really trying to figure out the ethics and the morality of all of those kinds of things. The actual issue here for the Jewish leaders and also for Pilate as the representation of the Roman Empire is purely political. It is simply the question about who has power right here, right now, and whether or not it has to be taken seriously. It is about who is king and what that might potentially mean. Now for Pilate in Rome, this issue was serious because Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea. That means that he was Rome's appointed official to oversee what happened in Judea and to ensure that things continued according to the Roman plan of rule. He was the highest ranking Roman official in the Roman Empire in that area. And as such, a significant part of his job was really ensuring three things. The first thing was basically this. Governors served as judges, and they had sole authority for imposing capital punishment. That, in a nutshell, is why the Jewish leaders are bringing Jesus to Pilate. Because even though they wanted him dead, it would have been illegal for them to put him to death on their own, or they could have ended up on crosses themselves. It was illegal for anyone other than Rome to pass a sentence of capital punishment. And that would have been Pilate's job to determine that. Second, governors were responsible for the orderly leveraging of taxes and tribute to the Roman Empire. It was Pilate's job to ensure that people went about the really good, solid goal of working, making money, and paying money to Rome. So if they're doing like res, you know, insurrections and revolts, they're not spending their time on that. And it had a very real economic impact on the Roman Empire. It would have been his job to stop it. Which brings us to the third thing. Governors had military authority as well, and they were tasked with keeping order in the empire. And yes, that did include quelling riots, insurrections, and revolutions. And a governor who couldn't keep order in his territory or if he was viewed as being inept, and that reached the ears of Caesar, Caesar could not only remove him, but could imprison him or put him to death. So there's a lot riding on this with Pilate. Regardless of who the Jewish leaders say that he is, what he's interested in is, um, so uh, you're asking me to put him to death. Who is this guy? Is he gonna start a a revolution that is going to impact the economy of the empire? And are you positing him as some kind of rival king or something like that? Because here's the deal. Rome had a zero tolerance policy on rivals and revolts. If you're going to be a rival to Caesar, we're coming after you. If you're starting a revolt, we are coming after you. We do not tolerate rivals or revolts. That's Pilate's issue. 
Now, the Jewish leaders, they had serious issues with Jesus in two distinct areas, both of which have proven problematic for them. And for them, the first issue actually is theological. You see, you might recall that Jesus had not only called them out on several occasions across the Gospels, addressing them directly with very like flowery kind terms like whitewashed tombs, hypocrites, generally saying that they didn't have high value in the kingdom of God as a general rule. And not only that, but he had called them out in public, resisted their attempts to put him in his place, and then, if you can believe it, he had the audacity to claim that he was equal with God. Not just a prophet, not just a rabbi, but God in the flesh walking among them as God's one and only son. That was blasphemy of the highest order. And when you find someone who does that, according to Jewish tradition, scripture, and law, you drag them before the people and you stone them to death. You just can't let something like that go. If someone's claiming that, you have to deal with it, and the way you deal with it is you kill it. But second, they did actually have a political problem. And we get a hint about that earlier in John 11, 47 through 48, where we read, then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Check this. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. See, here's the thing. For them, there was the very real danger that Rome would think of Jesus as Jewish. Because he was. But here's the thing. Rome was not known for its surgical tactics in dealing with insurrections. They were pretty ham-handed. It was like, hey, you're revolting. We're wiping all of you out. They wouldn't show up and say, okay, so exactly which sect of Judaism is causing the problems? Is it the Essenes this time? We know that it's not the Herodians, like they're on our side. Okay, like, but like who, who's causing the problem? They probably would have just shown up and said, no more Jews. In fact, they actually tried to do that a couple of times. So there's a very real reason why the Jewish leaders are concerned that if word reaches Rome that there's this revolutionary kind of brewing trouble that people are calling a king, Rome's just going to do what Rome does and just say, yeah, we're done with that. We don't tolerate rivals or revolts. I think we get this a little bit in our culture, actually. I have a friend who is a Muslim, and uh, over coffee a few years back, I remember he said, you know, Jack, it really concerns me greatly that Americans think that all Muslims are like those people who flew those planes into the buildings in New York. We're not all like that any more than all Christians are members of the KKK. Some may be or may claim to be, but the vast majority are horrified at what those people advocate. And it's really a very small segment of Islam that, yes, highly publicized though it may be, are not representative of the rest of us who love peace, actually like Christians and recognize them as what we call people of the book and are content to live together with them. But, but he's right, isn't he? For many of us as Americans, we just see all Muslims the same way and we're suspicious of them. In the same way, the Jewish leaders worried that Rome would do the same thing. And ultimately, 
It is a blend of those two things that gives the Jewish leaders the leverage that they need with Pilate to have Jesus crucified by knowing what Rome needed to hear and leveraging, right, rival and revolt language, they could sort of force Pilate's hand into doing what they themselves could not do, which was put Jesus to death. And what's really crazy to me is that the Jewish leaders formally reject the king that God offers them and in exchange, give their allegiance to a pathological, genocidal madman named Caesar. It is crazy. But it's what happened. So let's take a look at the passage itself. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? Notice what they say here. You'll notice that the Jewish leaders never actually say that they acknowledge Jesus as their king. Watch this. If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death that he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied, your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it that you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. <laughs> what even is truth, retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here's the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law. And according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. Now when Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize that I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. 
Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. And from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. And when Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the stone pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. And it was the day of preparation for the Passover and it was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. Wow. You guys see it? The issue here is the simple, pointed, repeated question of who is king? Pilate is trying to demand a straight answer. The Jews are desperately attempting to get what they want without acknowledging it. Jesus is denying it. And ultimately, the action goes where it needs to go. But notice this. As I just said, the Jews never actually say that Jesus is king. But they need for Rome to think that so that Rome will do what they need Rome to do. They are attempting to manipulate the system because they couldn't legally execute him themselves. And since the Jews don't say, hey, Pilate, we've got this guy who thinks that he's the king of the Jews, it's interesting that Pilate knows enough about Jesus to ask him questions about kingship, don't you think? Are you the king of the Jews, he asks him point blank. I just love how Jesus doesn't give him a straight answer, but there is no question about what he is saying. Like Pilate asks him enough questions and Jesus gives him enough answers that Pilate gets what he needs, but it's not a clean, easy, straightforward confession. But everybody knows what Jesus is saying. And in fact, I would mention to you that if Jesus was not claiming to be king, he was not claiming to God, then any sane, rational, normal human being would be pleading for their life right now. Man, Pilate, I'm really sorry. You just totally misunderstood, and so did they. I'm not a king. I'm just a teacher. I'm just here to talk to people about God. I'm Jewish. We're not trying to start any trouble. We don't have no beef. Like, we're just trying, like, like it would have, like, anything to try to avoid being hung on a cross and dying one of the most torturous, horrific deaths that you can imagine. Anybody would have been doing that. But instead, Jesus enters into this sort of cryptic philosophical discussion about the nature of truth. <laughs> Jesus rocks. And Pilate himself knows something smells fishy about all of this and realizes that Jesus has not done anything officially wrong, nor that he is worthy of death. And he even tells the Jewish leaders this openly. But when the Jewish leaders bring Caesar into the equation, when they whip an increasingly vocal crowd into a frenzy and then are willing to acknowledge their loyalty to Caesar using rival and revolt kind of language, it is enough for Pilate to act and have him executed as the enemy of Rome. So here's the thing, friends. The issue in this passage is really not about innocence or guilt. It's really not about sin or judgment. It's not even about power or justice. It is really about kingship. 
It's about the fact that Jesus was the rightful, God-given king of the Jews and the entire world. And as its king, Jesus spends his life and his ministry talking about and demonstrating at every term what the kingdom that he rules and represents looks like, providing evidence of it in his actions and recruiting his followers to be agents of the kingdom in the world around them. And lest we forget brothers and sisters, what kind of king he is and what kind of kingdom he represents. Let me just remind you that he is a king who promises a place where there is no war. In Isaiah 2.4, we learn that. See, in our context, our weapons, our defenses, our military, our rights, they're just no longer necessary because in the kingdom of God, people will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will no longer take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. There's no sickness, there's no pain, there's no grief, there's no mourning. We learn this in Revelation 21.4. There's no COVID, there's no monkeypox, there's no cancer. No children, no adults die from plague. There's no death. In John eleven twenty five, 25, he tells Mary and Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die. There's no homelessness in the kingdom of God. We learn that in John 14, 2. There's no spiritual darkness. We learn that in Mark 5, 1 through 20. You see, in the kingdom of God, Satan, demons, and anything else that sets itself up against the knowledge of a holy and righteous God just can't live or function there. It has no influence. There's not even any spiritual ignorance in the kingdom of God. We learn that in Jeremiah 31, 34. There will be no missions and no missionaries. You know why? Because everybody knows and sees who God is and worships him freely. There is no conflict between the nations. There is no hunger. There is no predation or oppression, even in the animal kingdom. I love this. In Isaiah 66, 25, we learn that the lion will eat straw like an ox. I'm guessing that sharks are gonna eat kelp because, you know, fish are friends, not food, right? There will be justice. All the injustice that we have endured across the ages and generations will be set aright. There will be mercy, there will be accountability, there will be judgment, there will also be compassion. There will be what the Bible calls shalom. And that is not just the concept of like peace, man, or the absence of fighting, though it certainly includes that. The biblical concept of shalom is literally the piecing back together of everything, the way that God intended it to be. And Jesus is both the ambassador of that kingdom and the center of it as king. And everything that he did in his life, his ministry, and then, yes, even in his death, burial, and resurrection, pointed to the fact that he wasn't there to win an election, to conquer a military or a hostile nation, or even to launch another new religion, friends. The point of all of what Jesus came here to do was to inaugurate a new kingdom, the kingdom of God, and just as he says in this passage, it is something that only he can ultimately bring about. Though we as his servants and followers have the honor and the privilege 
of joining him in bringing like ushers and midwives that reality into our own through the way that we live and believe and pray and act. It brings that reality crashing into our own. And as wonderful as that sounds and as much as we all hopefully are likely wooed by that idea, there's still no getting around the fact that at the center of all of it is Jesus, and that his role in the center of all of that is as king. And in this passage today, as we have just seen, both the Jews and the Romans understood that very clearly, and they killed him for it. Now that has to stop us, friends, because as I've already alluded to and said, this is the exact same issue for us today. Jesus still claims to be king. And while we love the idea that he offers to save us from our sins, and he does, and that he guarantees us everlasting life for those of his followers who would believe in him, and he does, we as his followers have to recognize that I think we often misunderstand that what he is essentially saying is, is that I am also king. And we have to know what that means, so let me tell you. Jesus claims no less than to be the first and last word about everything in your life. In fact, if you are in Christ, if you are a follower of Jesus, we acknowledge it's not even your life anymore. Paul sums this up very well in Galatians 2.20 when he says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It means that there is no place in my life that is off limits to him, to his spirit, or to what he has to say about what it means. In so many words, that means that wherever and whatever we are doing, we are both demonstrating and proclaiming the idea of making way for the king in everything. If we are followers of Jesus and we acknowledge him as savior, we are also acknowledging him as king and everything in our life should scream, make way for the king. Make way for the king in your life, your world, your workplace, your recreation, and your relationships. And what we're going to talk about next, I'm just going to say on the front end, this is really for those of us who have made the decision to follow Jesus and to acknowledge him as our king and our Lord, our savior and our God. And if you're here today or you're watching online and you're like, "Eh, I'm not sure that's me yet, Jack, that's okay. We are so glad that you are here. We're so glad that you're listening in, but I'm going to tune in for just a second for my brothers and my sisters. And I'm gonna say this. I'm gonna touch on two topics in a moment that are a little bit tender. And I'm gonna ask for your grace as I do so. And we're gonna talk a little bit about what kingdom looks like in these two areas. And I need to state at the outset that This is really not about how you vote, it is about how you live. And I don't expect our culture, by the way, which has pretty much walked away from the kingship of Jesus, to even consider the things that I'm talking about next. See, our world, if it thinks of Jesus at all, 
is doing what Pilate and the Jewish leaders were doing. It is attempting to create polarized small segments of decisions and then forcing a king to step in and take a place in one of those. Are you Jewish or Roman, Jesus? Do we pay taxes to Caesar or not, Jesus? Do we stone this woman or not, Jesus? Are you liberal or conservative, Jesus? Are you a Democrat or a Republican, Jesus? Are you Second Amendment or gun control, Jesus? Are you pro-life or or pro-choice, Jesus? Are you affirming or non-affirming, Jesus? Pick a side. You know what I will tell you, brothers and sisters? If a king goes where we force them to go, they're not a king, they're a pawn. If you're a king, you set the board and then we conform to it, not the other way around. And if Jesus is king, he gets to state the reality, we don't. He asks us to choose, we don't. Do you see how that works? If he is king, then he is king in every area of our life. And I would tell you that he doesn't often fit neatly or easily into clean political packages. And because of that, the world has already decided that Jesus isn't worthy to be its king. That's their issue. But for us, it's different. For those of us who are willing to call him king, we understand that we partner with him to bring into reality, into our own lives, his kingdom from heaven to earth when we obey him, when we submit ourselves to him, when we act like citizens of the reality that he talks about and even in the one that we are currently experiencing. We don't actually expect to legislate or vote that kingdom into existence because he said it is not of this world. He is the one who brings it about. And we partner with him to do that. So I wonder what it might look like for us to make way for the king in some practical ways. I'm just going to touch on a couple. For example, what would it look like for us to make way for the king with our finances and our possessions? If he is king... That means that our paychecks, our 401ks, our nest eggs, our investments, our houses, and everything else that we have been entrusted with is his, not ours. It means that he may delight to distribute wealth to us in varying degrees to bless us and for us to enjoy it, but it also means that he can ask for a portion, a part, or all of it back. And that when he does, or if he does, it is not unreasonable or irrational or, or irrational or wrong. He's king. It's his anyway. A few years ago, when I was on a spiritual retreat, I, I was trying to pray through some things that were really like a big deal uh, to me and to my family. And in the process of that silence and solitude, uh, I remember I was, I was spending some time in prayer, and I just remembered this time that when I was a, uh, when I was a younger man, Um, in my youthful enthusiasm, right? In my energy and and, and in my just like my desire to love him and, and to serve him and to be generous and extravagant with my life toward him, I remember that I made a commitment to give him a certain percentage of my income for the rest of my life. I think he understood the passion behind that and, and the desire in my heart to love and honor and serve him. But the truth is, I, uh, I, didn't, I didn't do that. 
And, and I walked away from it. And you know what was interesting? I never sensed condemnation about that. Whenever I would go to prayer, I never sensed that he was asking me or holding me to that. And then I met Sammy. Yeah. And then we had some kids. And then life got really expensive, right? And so it was kind of like, whoo, this is really hard. And then I went away on this retreat. And in the process of praying through some things, I really felt the spirit of the living God nudge and say, hey, remember that? Now is the time. And I'm going to ask you to step into that. I remember thinking, oh, no. <laughs> like, we can't afford that. That's not within our budget. That's effectively going to double what we had already set aside to give. We just, I mean, like, <laughs> really, God, like, you've got to be kidding me, right? No, Jack, I'm just inviting you to step into this with me. I, I was scared. I'm going to go home and talk to my wife. Hey, sweetie, guess what, guess what I felt like the Spirit of God was leading us to do? Right? But if you know my wife, you know that she's awesome. And so I went home and I kind of talked to her about it. And honestly, without flinching, she was like, okay, this is what we need to do. We will obey. We will honor God. He is king. And we will submit our finances to him anyway. And here's what I will tell you guys. It has not always been easy. <laughs> Man, it has not always been easy. But you know what's been fun? It has been this ridiculous adventure of generosity and joy that I will tell you, I don't believe we could have experienced any other way. And when the Father asked us to do that, he asked us to peel off a portion of that new giving and to do these little covert, I call them love ninja missions, where we just get to be blessing and conduit of blessing and generosity to people that he directs us to serve. And we have a journal full of the things that are these little covert operations that the Spirit of God has moved us into, and we love it. It's awesome. And this is not to toot our horn. What I am simply telling you is, is, hey, you know what? If he's king, he can do that. Because he's king. And if my king asks me for something that I have, something that I think that I possess, I will just tell you again, it's at his disposal, not mine. And if I resist him, by the way, or I hold things back, those things have just become my king instead. Do you see how that works? I wonder what it would look like for us to make way for the king with our sexuality. I think the church has either dealt with this issue in our current day poorly or refused to deal with it at all, honestly. But I will tell you something. If I make way for the king in every area of my life, then it shouldn't surprise me that my orientation, my preferences, who I date, who I marry, who I have sex with, how, and what I do with the results of those unions should be and must be submitted to my king. And he actually does have quite a lot to say about that topic. And again, I am personally apologizing to you and those who are watching online for the fact that the church has pretty much just settled for saying what not to do rather than setting a trajectory for what shalom and health and the kingdom of God should look like in that area. And in our culture we have sort of contented ourselves with the idea of trying to figure out where Jesus would stand on a set of extremes. But I think often his answer, when we try to set that line in the sand, would actually be neither and both. 
And I'd like to tread, again, I hope very delicately, about why I don't think he's quite so easy to pin down. On the issue of abortion, I believe that in the kingdom of God there are neither aborted children nor women who are placed in positions where that even occurs to them to do so. Because both are loved, both are cared for, both are embraced and nurtured in a way that simply makes the opposites unthinkable. As a result, therefore, as agents of the kingdom of God who are living as though Jesus is king of our sexuality and our reproduction, we rush to say to women who are confused, scared, angry, hurt, and feel that there are no other options, that we are here, that we love you, that you are not alone, that we are with you, And when the king asks you to carry a child to term, no matter how it got put there, we understand that he may be asking us as well to adopt it, to foster it, to care for you and for that baby well. Abortion isn't an option in the kingdom of God because it's just not an issue. And there are neither of the extremes, and both of the people involved, the mother and the child, are loved, they are honored, They are not abandoned, they are not rejected, and they are not thrown away. And you might say, well, Jack, that's that's a nice thought, but that's just really not the world that we live in, is it? I would say you make your reality every single day and you choose which one you will honor. Is it his reality? Is it yours? Is it his kingdom? Whose is it and who is king? Now friends, I will just tell you, in my own family, we have had to walk on both sides of this particular issue. If you don't know, my wife Samantha and I, we were house parents at a teen maternity home for two years. We walked with 10 different young women over the course of a two-year period, giving them a safe place to be able to have their babies, to learn what to do with them, to put them up for adoption or to keep them. We walked to nurture them. We introduced them to Jesus. Some of them met him there. We've done that. We've attempted to put our money where our mouth is, but I will also tell you we've been on the other side of that equation. Several years ago, we had a crisis pregnancy of our own, and the doctors actually sat us both down and said, we want you to know, if you do not allow us to terminate this pregnancy, it will endanger the life of your wife. And guess what? It did. Uh, I had to rush her to the hospital twice for emergency blood transfusions. In both of those instances, I will never forget, as the ER doctor said, I don't know how she's alive right now. She should be in cardiac arrest. Her heart is pumping. There is no blood in her veins to pump. But we laid it before the king. We asked what he would have us to do. And we continued forward. A couple of months later, she went into labor. She gave birth to a stillborn baby who looks just like his older brother. And we suddenly entered the darkest, scariest, most painful place we have ever walked as a family. And we cried out to God, where are you? 
This isn't what I thought having you as king looked like. Where are you? I can't hear you. So you know what he did? He sent his people. They walked with us. They brought us meals. They sat with us. They cried with us. They let us rage. And they did it until we could hear the voice of the Father again. And I will tell you, brothers and sisters, that as someone who stands before you right now, that I am not saying that making Jesus king is easy. But if you will hear it from me, I will simply tell you it is worth it. And it will impact every single area and every single decision that you will make. He's king. And I will tell you that out of that, we as a family walked into a season of transformation and healing and grace where the King of Kings and Lord of Lords stepped into our darkness and our brokenness and said, I am here. And I will take you from here and I will move you from here and we will get there together. So I'm gonna pause for a moment and just say, that if you are one of those women who is currently struggling with a decision like that, or you've already made a decision like that, and you are struggling with it as a result, please hear me when I say that you are welcome in the kingdom of God, sister. And you are welcome here with us. And if you don't know what to do, or you need someone to talk to, I will tell you that you can come down front right after this gathering and you can talk with my friend Patty Rummins. She has been there. She's stood where you are. She understands. She can talk with you. She can help you. She can pray with you. And if you're on the other side of that equation, where you're thinking that you would like to engage the fight from the other side, that God might be moving you to foster, to adopt, or to walk with those who are doing so, who are in the process of crisis pregnancy, you also can come down uh, here to Trinity Church on August 10th from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. for our last summer hangout. It is being hosted by our friends from Open Arms. It is led by Ryan and Carla Kelly, two of the godliest people that I know, and they will introduce you to ways where you can walk alongside those who are facing those decisions, who are the results of those decisions, <laughs> and are seeking to live with those decisions. Now, these are just two areas, friends, where the kingship of Jesus means that there is no area of our lives that is off limits to his reign, his rule, and his authority. And that when we submit to it and we sacrifice for it, which by the way, I just want to remind you, that's what the word worship means, then we take hold of the reality that he says is his kingdom and we crash it into our own. Now, for some of us here today, if you're like me, you might say, man, Jack, I don't even know how I would begin to do that, but I've been all three of those people. I've been the Jewish leader, like I was, demanding my way, 
telling Jesus that if this is what your kingship looks like, I don't want it. I've been the Jewish leader. You know what? I've been Pilate, just trying to protect my little patch of land, my way of doing things, not looking for any significant rivals or revolts. I've been Barabbas. If you're a follower of Jesus and you're here today, you know what I'm talking about. I was set free while the king of kings went on my death on my behalf. I think we all get that. But no matter who you are and no matter where you are today, friends, I would tell you that if we here at Trinity Church present a version of Jesus to you that is anything less than the absolute monarch of all creation, we have failed in our jobs as teachers and shepherds. So as uncomfortable as a concept as it may be in our 21st century North American world, it is nevertheless a concept that we cannot ignore. He is king. And you can bow now or you can bow later. But whether or not he's king is not up for grabs. Now you might be here today and you might say, I, I, I don't know how to do any of that stuff. I don't know how to listen to the spirit of God. You're talking about being on retreats. How do you even do that? Brothers and sisters, God speaks most often through his word, his spirit, and his people, and we can help. If you don't know how to listen to the spirit of the living God through his word, this month we are doing an infusion Bible conference where you can dig deep and you can actually learn about the context and the environment where Jesus lived, taught, died, and rose again. You can do that. Did you know that we're bringing Bible Study Fellowship, an international organization whose whole job is just to help people dig into the word? It's right here at Trinity Church. You can start this month. If you don't know how to listen to the Spirit of God through the Word of God, we can help. If you don't know how to listen to the Spirit of God direct in prayer, we can help. At the end of this month, we're going to be releasing on wearetrinity.tv a whole series on just listening prayer. It's video-based. You can do it straight in the, in the comfort of your own living room. We'll walk you through the basics of how do you listen. And if you're like, well, where do I get some people of God? Man, I feel alone, like Katie talked about. I'm out there all by myself. If I'm an agent of the kingdom, I'm doing like a solo mission. Brothers and sisters, that is not how you were designed to be an agent of the king. So here's the thing. Katie talked about it. If you need to be connected to the people of God next weekend, you can do that right out here in one of our meetups. We will walk with you. We can help. And we want to. And if you don't know how to remember any of that stuff, or if you're like, what? I, somebody writing that down? Like, here's the thing. If you're confused, just send us an email. You can send it to hello at wearetrinity.com and we will get back with you. It is our joy, our honor, and our privilege to divert and to direct you where you need to go so that you as well can be awakened to full life with Christ. So I wonder who's with me today on all this. Now I'm gonna close by just spending a little bit of time in prayer together and we're gonna do something that's a little bit medieval. <laughs> And I'm just gonna make this an offer or an invitation. Here's the deal, there's no pressure. And this is really, you can do this at home, you can do this here. This is just one of those things that if you are physically able in just a couple of moments, I'm gonna lead us in prayer and I'm gonna ask you to kneel. Now if you grew up Catholic, that might be one of those things where you're like, I got you. But if you didn't grow up Catholic, 
You may be like, kneel? Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to invite you to kneel because when we kneel, what we are effectively saying is, all of me is given to all of you. It is your will, not my will. You are king, I am not. And I recognize that physically in my very posture together. Now, if you can't kneel or you don't want to kneel, that is totally okay. But for whoever does, we're going to do that together. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to have an opportunity in just a few minutes to just say, this area of my life, yeah, I've taken on some other allegiances. I've followed some other things that have told me they could keep me safe or that they could help me. I've, got, I've, I've picked up a couple of additional kings. You know what? We're going to have a chance to confess that. We're going to have a chance to repent of it. We're going to have a chance to ask the Father to cleanse us of that and to give us back what rightfully belongs as agents, children, and servants in his kingdom. So I'm just going to ask. I'm going to do I'm going to take a knee. If you are able and you would like to join me, I'm just going to invite you to kneel as we go to the Father in prayer. Abba and Father, King and Lord, we come to you right now in the name of Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the monarch of all creation who holds us, who spoke all that we see and experience into being by the word of his power. And we remember again together and as individuals that all that we have and all that we are only has meaning when it is appropriately submitted and put at your feet And we remember that we have usurped, that we have taken back, that we've built little kingdoms for ourselves where we've tried to rule and reign. And we know it. We've allowed other things to come in, to vie for our attention as kings, as rulers, as protectors, as providers, And we take the opportunity right now in this space to reject them, to place them at your feet, and to remember again together that you are king. You're the only one. And so, Father, right now, in the name of Jesus, in the quiet of my own heart and in my own mind, I confess to you right now anything else in my life that I have allowed to compete for kingship in my world. And brothers and sisters, I don't know what that is, but I'm just gonna give you space to confess it before him right now. And right now, in the name of Jesus... I place it at your feet. I take my hands off of it. I turn away from it, my own crown, my own scepter, whatever other crown or scepter I may have followed or taken, I put it at your feet and I turn away from it right now in the name of Jesus. I repent 
of my dependency on that thing, that king. And I tell you, I don't want it anymore. I don't want it to rule. I don't want it to reign. You know what, Father? I've served that thing for a long time. And I'm not even sure what it would look like to continually turn away from it or to be free of it. But you say that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I ask right now in the name of Jesus, would you cleanse me, Father? Would you wash away from me anything else that would assert itself in my life? Any other king, any other label, any other identity, Abba, would you strip it away from me in the name of Jesus right now? And would you cleanse me of it? And now, Father, would you give me back all that rightfully belongs to me as a servant, as a child, as an agent of your kingdom, advancing your reign and rule in this world through my words, through my actions, through my beliefs, through my relationships, all that I have is yours. And Father, I ask in the name of Jesus, would you tell my brothers and sisters, Father, what are you giving them back right now? What are you offering them Father, we thank you that you speak. We remember again together that when we hear in prayer, nothing should cause us fear or shame or guilt. Those things are not from you or of you, for your children. Nothing should discord with your word or your character. You don't violate your word or your character. And nothing should push us farther from you or from others. Father, you always desire to draw us closer to you and to one another. And if it is from you, we want it. Father, we accept it, we receive it in the name of Jesus. We ask that you would plant it and water it in our heart, Father, that you would seal it, that you would cause it to grow and produce the fruit of love and joy, peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and temperance in the midst of a chaotic and increasingly divided world, Father. And we ask for these things in the name of Jesus, the King of Kings, that we serve. Amen. Now, brothers and sisters, I'm gonna finish by just praying blessing over you. You can sit, you can stand, and then that will effectively dismiss us. Father, I thank you for my brothers and my sisters. I pray your blessing over them, that they would indeed sense your face turned toward them this week, as they walk forward practically, Father, into seeing new territory to take in your name, new ways where they get the opportunity and the privilege to shout, make way for the king. And it is our joy to be called your children in Jesus' name. Amen. Go in peace, brothers and sisters.